Okay. In the morning when I came to the restaurant, I saw you bent over some secret revolutionary pamphlet or something. What are you reading these days? Pamphlet on the origin of metaphysics in Aristotle. Okay. <laughs> Always the subversive. And continuing in this vein of being subversive, um, we were talking politics the first half of the morning. Now we are going to be talking linguistics. Could you lay out for the ordinary person, Jane, you, not USA in this time, the ordinary person, uh, what generative grammar, the thing you've been doing basically for 60 years, what it is all about? What makes it different from when on before? What makes it different from what's going on in other realms of the humani humanities and linguistics now? children grew up in Nicaragua yeah and, and they uh, you know they have facility with this stuff but they're not immersed in it mm -hmm. they, yeah. you know, it's just kind of something they use when they have to yeah. mm. all right we're rolling again okay so let me just repeat the last, uh, the last question uh, can you set out uh, what uh, generative grammar is all about and set it out for the ordinary person? Well, if you go back 60 years roughly when this work began, uh, it departed from prevailing conceptions in a number of ways. Uh, for one thing, it, it took seriously something which is obviously true. Uh, our, each of us has a language capacity, something internal to us that enables us to do what you and I are now doing. So there's something in, inside the organism, mostly the brain, uh, which is uh, constructed in such a fashion that we can do this. Mm -hmm. So there's a biological problem uh, studying this. When did, did you start to think about this as uh, a biological thing? Right did, about, you, did about you do that right away when you wrote your BA or your MA or did it start a little more bit later? Pretty much, but it really began to become clarified in the early uh, uh, 1950s, about 60 years ago. Uh, the you have to understand the prevailing conception at the time was uh, uh, that there's what was called the behavioral sciences. That's mm -hmm. what dominated all thinking. and psychology, uh, philosophy, linguistics, everything. Uh, and that regarded language just as a kind of behavior. So it's like uh, drinking a cup of coffee or something else. Yeah. And the uh, gen prevailing assumption was that behavior is all a matter of conditioning, conditioning and training. So you're trained through conditioning, the way you train a, you know, a dog to lie down or something. You're trained through conditioning to produce uh, these sentences, and other people are trained to understand them. And for uh, so, so all you can study is either the behavior and the training period that leads to it, conditioning period, or the um, the outcome of behavior, like a text, you know, corpus yes. of material. So the the object of the study would be behavior. Behavior, behavior and its products, mostly result. its products. Yes. So you, or, uh, linguistics was a... So you would tape sentences or you would study texts and uh, statistical distribution. In, in principle, like I mean, that. any linguist whose head was screwed on didn't do that, but that was the principle. Mm -hmm. uh, and the theory, so, such as it was, was a set of techniques, procedures for organizing and analyzing data. You know, segmenting it, uh, classifying the segments, uh, bigger units. And when you're done with that, it's a construction, so-called, you know, passive, uh, mm -hmm. you know, verb, verb phrase or whatever. But when you're done with that, you're done with the uh, uh, with the work. It, it also followed, and indeed was said, 
stated that uh, languages can differ in arbitrary ways. Yes. So any any old thing can be a language. Nothing to say about it. Uh, and of course, from this these assumptions, it also uh, follows that uh, there can't be much of a difference between anim other animals and humans. After all, we're all just right. conditioned yes. by the same methods. So uh, humans would be different in that they maybe, maybe bigger a memory, bit more uh, bigger yeah. memory, or something, maybe something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, oh, this is just total nonsense. It can't possibly be true. In fact, it takes one minute reflection to see that it can't be true. So, for example, take, say, my granddaughter, and suppose she has a pet um, chimpanzee or songbird or something. And, uh, from birth, literally from birth, uh, my granddaughter, they both have the same data around them. Let's say they have exactly yes. the same data. Uh, the, my granddaughter instantly from birth, actually it's prenatal, as we now know, but from birth you can test that the infant selects out of the environment, which is a very complex environment, you know, selects data uh, which is language related. Mm -hmm. That's instantaneous. And then almost reflexively develops the capacities that we're using, it's now known that very early, way before the child can exhibit anything, they know they yes. have acquired so much of the language. there is always uh, something more than you something's see going on. Something's going on internally, reflexively, no training, doesn't matter, yes. the infant just picks it up. On the other hand, the pet chimpanzee it can't take the first step, it's just no, there's just a lot of noise going on. Yeah. And uh, from that trivial fact alone, and that's just the bare beginning, it follows that there's some unique biological capacity. When you begin looking at the language, at what's acquired, it has properties that just don't exist in the uh, animal world outside so of humans. Something, something has to be there uh, that enables humans yeah. to do this. Yeah, just as uh, the, the same reasons why you have a a mammalian visual system and not an insect visual yes. system. It's not from experience. Yeah. Yesterday you were uh, talking about uh, the there is no language view. Language doesn't exist view. Well, the, what, what about that? That was uh, the view I mean, that uh, prevailed. Something that's uh, maybe even kind of prevalent now is mm. the view they would give that point there has to be something that is uh, innate. Nobody dispute that, uh, disputes that now. Well, that's it's not true, back, unfortunately. Back. <laughs> it's, okay. In fact, it's very common to deny it now. And are just as in the 1950s, that takes slightly different forms, but a, a very dominant view in the cognitive sciences mm -hmm. and related parts of linguistics is uh, pretty much like the 1950s. There is no language. There's just some relatively arbitrary collection of uh, uh, actions, uh, you know, acquired by pattern formation or you know, habits or something, just like other, you know. Actually, none of this works for animals either, incidentally. That's another story. But it was assumed at the time that uh, animal behavior could be accounted for in terms of uh, conditioning, habit, uh, induction, and so on. That's now known to be false also. But uh, the assumption is whatever is going on with language is the same, and languages can differ in arbitrary ways. There are no generalizations. Just, uh, I mean, as far as animals are concerned, uh, experiments by Lorenz or Thunbergen at, uh, at the time, then in Europe, even at that time, tended to show that. that it's well, not that's quite interesting. The, uh, uh, back in the early 50s, uh, these were the prevailing uh, dominant uh, attitudes, not even question. But there were a few graduate students at Harvard, two or three. Uh, I was one. Eric Lenneberg yes. was another. I was just going to Mars ask about that. Ooh, we ooh, were uh, reading Lawrence and Tinberg, yes. but nobody was looking at that. That yes. was heresy. That was kind of old-fashioned uh, European nonsense. So, in fact, the first mention of any of this really I mean, there was some in comparative psychology, and a few people did it. Yes. Zoologists looked at it, but uh, in these fields, what became the cognitive sciences and linguistics, the first reference to any of this work was in things that we wrote.
it was not known at all, and uh, regard to the extent it was known, it was dismissed. When did you first start reading this stuff, and when did you first met uh, meet uh, Eric Lennonberg? Uh, about 1951, mm -hmm. so 60 years ago, when we all got to Harvard. Yes. We got there as grad students. Yeah, who were some of the other people who were part of this? Maurice Halley, obviously. What uh, about Sylvain Bromberger? Sylvain Bromberger. Oh, that's later. That's uh, later. He's, uh, he came, he's a mathematician and yes. a biologist. Mm -hmm. He came around um, 1960 or so visiting mm -hmm. and he fell in right away. You know, yes. So. But uh, he was just coming from a different background, mathematics and biology. I think the beginnings of the 1960s was also when you met uh, Lila Gleitman. Lila Gleitman was a student in the late 50s mm -hmm. and I met her. I was teaching part-time at Penn, where mm -hmm. she was, and I met her in 57, 58, and she got interested in it. And by the late 50s, uh, others were beginning to be almost all students, mm -hmm. practically nobody else. In fact, the, about the only senior faculty member who was even marginally interested was uh, George Miller, psychologist yeah. at, the at Harvard. He, he used he, to he be interested. a behaviorist. He was originally a very committed behaviorist, but he was quite open-minded. He also had a mathematical background, yes. and uh, he could, uh, as soon as you think about these questions, it instantly collapses. And he was open-minded enough to think about it. Uh, and uh, you have to understand how dogmatic the, the atmosphere was at the time. You just couldn't talk about these things. But Miller did, and he became interested, and he was helpful. and. Uh, in fact, Eric Lenneberg uh, was his student, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the, you know, which meant working with, and I worked with him too from the mid-50s. Uh, but uh, it basically was young people who just kind of broke through. Well, it's, uh, first, one aspect of it is the biological orientation. In fact, yes. Eric Lenneberg went on to pretty much found biology of language. Uh, the other aspect was just the question of what is the system. As soon as you recognize that there's some biological capacity, kind of like, say, the visual system or immune system or whatever it may be, next question is, well, what is it? Uh, yes. Well, it turns out uh, that as soon as you look at it, you see it has some very unusual properties. So one of the, the simplest property of language is uh, what's called discrete infinity. So it's kind of like the number system, yes. you know, one, two, three. So there's, um, you know, uh, there's a five-word sentence, there's a six-word sentence, uh, on and on, no, no limit. But there's no five-and-a-half-word <laughs> sentence, and there's no end. You can make longer, more complex sentences without limit. So that's a special property, and uh, it was understood by the roughly 1950, the The, the formal nature of such systems was then pretty well understood. Mm -hmm. The foundations of computer science, theory of automata, and so on. Uh, so what it means is there's some kind of process, procedure, that constructs these things in your mind. And yes. a generative um, procedure, it's you called. Would, you would consider, and that also relates to some of the things you said yesterday, you would consider that uh, a module, like the visual system is. Nobody says, well, uh, all of the brain is committed to what the visual thing is, uh, system is doing. And you would say the same is true for language. It's a, it's a module distinct from other modules that the brain may have. Notice it does not follow from that that it's localized. Like take the immune system. Yes, that's sure. in every cell of the not, body. Not in, in one location. You can't cut it out. Yes, you know. uh, but in fact, it is somewhat localized. But it turns out that it is localized, but it doesn't have to be, uh, just because it's a module. There are modules that aren't localized. But uh, the uh, uh, by now, it's in fact it was known in the 19th century that there's some parts of the brain that seem to be specialized for language. Yes. Broca's area, Wernicke's area, and so on. But uh, uh, and, and by now, a fair amount is known about this, and it's pretty interesting what's known. For example, it turns out that uh, a lot of everyone's surprised that uh, uh, sign language, the language of the blind, of the deaf, is uh, 
is localized in the same areas of the brain as, mm -hmm. as sound language, which is a surprise because if the modality is visual, not auditory, but it all goes into the same left hemisphere analytic center of the brain for normals, uh, which is, and there's by now much more detailed knowledge of how yes. similar they are. So there's something... And, and you, you mentioned the name of Andrea Moro. Well, that's an interesting... Ex he's a linguist who works in yes. Milan on, uh, with neurologists on uh, neurolinguistics. And it's a hard topic. I mean, yes. but, uh, there are some results. They had one quite in interesting result, which I mentioned last night. Uh, they found that uh, the actual experiment, which I didn't describe, the, uh, they had uh, speakers of German monolingual speakers of German, yes. and they presented them with materials. Uh, one of the set, sets of materials was uh, actually taken from Italian, mm -hmm. so for them it was nonsense syllables, but yes. it was actual Italian and it met the principles of universal grammar, the genetic principles. Mm -hmm. The other was invented, and it was a simple pseudo-language, which used mm -hmm. principles that violate the conditions of what's called universal grammar. Universal grammar is a technical term. It's often misunderstood. It means the genetic component. Yes. It's just the reference to the genetic component. So they took systems that violate the simple rules that violate mm -hmm. those principles. Uh, the case that they used was uh, something like, um, say, forming a negative sentence by taking the negation particle, every yes. language has one not or something, and putting it after the third word of the sentence. Right. So the way to negate a sentence is to say the sentence. And so that would be the kind of uh, linear rule. A linear rule. Yeah. That you were talking about yesterday. Yeah. And those rules are computationally extremely simple, uh, yes. much simpler than the actual rules, but uh, they're just not consistent with the genetic basis for language. And what they found was that when the Germans were learning what in fact was Italian, uh, the uh, normal language areas, Broca's area, was activated in a normal fashion. When they were studying, when they were presented with these pseudo-languages with quite simple computational procedures, it wasn't going to Broca's area. Yes. Uh, other parts of the brain were being Something activated. Something different in the brain reacted well, to it. Well, what it means is the people were just treating it as a puzzle, you know, kind yes. of like a jigsaw puzzle or something. But uh, so the brain so is... maybe general problem-solving capacity well, or somewhere... It's called general problem-solving, but that's just yes. an expression of our ignorance. Exactly. I mean, if we ever <laughs> understood anything about problem-solving, which we don't, we'd find that it's also probably highly modular and very specific. Yes. So but if, uh, if we knew more about it, we wouldn't yeah. be talking in that way. No. Uh, when people talk about general systems, that just means they don't know what they're talking about. Because uh, as, as soon as you begin to understand something, you see it doesn't work like that. I mean, the same is true of um, insects, you know, pigeons yes. or whatever. Uh, what looks general, is mainly our ignorance. Uh, so yes. if you take, say, radical uh, behaviorist uh, studies of uh, pigeons, you know, mm -hmm. uh, one of the main experimental animals, uh, you know, they thought they could do things like train pigeons to, say, play ping pong or something. But when these were analyzed more closely, what it was discovered was they're actually taking the instinctive behavior of pigeons. Pigeons peck. That's something they do instinctively. And you can slightly modify their pecking behavior so it looks to you like they're playing ping pong. Yes. The pigeon just thinks it's pecking, you know. And in fact, if you look even more closely, it turns out that what's considered pecking is actually at least two different, totally different systems. One is pecking and one is uh, is swallowing water. They look the same, but from the pigeon's point of view, they're totally different. Yes. And, you, if you, and you have to distinguish these from each other. And in fact, you know, the whole behavioral system, behavior system just totally collapsed, uh, just from internal inquiry into the nature of uh, uh, actual behavior. Instant, incidentally, when I say it collapsed, I don't mean it disappeared. So it's still very widely believed. 
in cognitive sciences, in the, among the general public, and so on. In fact, it's even taught in universities, shouldn't be, but is. Would you say that the various and very famous ape language experiments are the same, like uh, the pigeons playing ping pong, or the similar? ape language experiments are an interesting illustration of uh, the pathology of human uh, inquiry. Uh, it, it, I mean, the whole idea is absurd. I mean, it's as if we were... Say, well, there's been a lot of very good work on bee communication, you know, von Frisch, famous work, Nobel Prizes, they do all sorts of strange things. Uh, you could train graduate students to do something like the waggle dance of bees, um, and they'd do a pretty good job, you know, they wave their arms around and run over there. But the whole idea is ludicrous. I mean, you would learn nothing about bees that way. You would just learn it's possible to get a, some superficial similarity to something bees do. I mean, but when you, humans, we refuse to study rationally. I mean, we're willing to study insects rationally. When we turn to the study of humans, we become totally irrational. Uh, so you do things in the study of humans, it would be a joke if you did it with, uh, say, insects. And that's what the ape language is. I mean, you're, you're sort of training these poor animals to do something which very superficial, which they can't do, you know. Yes. So they can kind of mimic a few simple things. Um, as I say, graduate students could do much better mimicking bee communication, yeah. but it's, it's all a joke. And of course it gets nowhere. Uh, but, it, but even if it did get somewhere, it would be meaningless because you're trying to train them to do something they can't do. If they could do it, then the chimp, my, my granddaughter's chimpanzee uh, pet, she would, would be doing it. You just get the same data, why don't they do the same thing? Uh, but so it, it's, all, it's all basically a joke. I mean, it's taken seriously, it's written up in the science journals and so on, but that's, uh, that's a reflection of human irrationality. It has nothing to do with the sciences. Uh, a lot of this, uh, the same is true of a lot of the work in um, computer science, trying to, what's called artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. which actually one smart biologist once called natural stupidity. <laughs> it's a, it's a, an effort to try to get automata to do things that look human-like, you know, like little robots from space wars or whatever. And you can do things. I mean, you can construct an automaton that'll do things that look something like what humans do, but it's utterly meaningless. It emulates it, but it's, it, it's, it's not the same thing. It's like we getting graduate students. We are at point where, where you get behavior and study behavior again, but not what's You're not finding out what's going behavior. on inside. And the point is we understand that perfectly well when it's any non-human organism we're talking about. So to get humans to act like, say, apes or dogs or bees, people would regard as ridiculous, correctly. Because who cares, you know? Uh, and the uh, same with, uh, you know, automata that uh, act like dogs. Let's say. I mean, you could, you can. People, bee scientists do construct mechanical bees, but for a scientific reason, uh, they construct automata which act more or less like bees. But they want to see if the bees will swarm when they're led by a mechanical bee instead of an actual bee. And that's important because that can test how the bee is doing it. Like, yes. are they following an odor trail or are they doing something else? Well, okay, you can test that by constructing a mechanical bee. So that's bee. once again the question, what, uh, what is the real research interest? Do you study the organism or do you study something that's yeah, going some on? Of, yeah, and the, in the sciences for, I mean, back to the Babylonians, you don't just study data. Yeah. You know, it's mm. totally pointless. When you started to go about this uh, seriously, um, how did your uh, own methods or the linguistic kind of linguistics you started doing, how did it differ, f uh, for example, from what's laid down in that famous book by your teacher, Zelik Harris? You just characterized it a couple of minutes before, and uh, you uh, uh, cut language into segments, and then you have larger segments, and so on and so forth. 
you did something different first as a kind of kind of a hobby of yours and then you discovered that was well, this different was method was the real thing i mean the as soon as you if you approach language from the point of view we've been talking about mm -hmm. the first problem is to figure out what the generative procedure is what's the procedure that you have to, it has some elementary properties there's got to be some computational procedure in the brain which constructs an infinite array of structured expressions which are uh, interpreted by other systems. So they're interpreted by the sensory motor system, that's what comes So up. this idea is very central, that it's a generative procedure that has to be able to do the things you mentioned before, namely uh, create an infinity, discrete infinity. Of structured expressions. Yes. And they have at least two interpretations. One is sensory motor, you know, you hear it. But the other, which is much more fundamental, is that it intersects with thought systems. Mm -hmm. uh, systems of planning, of uh, organization of action, yes. and, uh, drawing inferences and so on. So that the objects that are constructed by this com computational procedure must be such that the thought systems can interpret it and that yes. the sensory motor system can interpret it. That's elementary. Now, uh, the approach that Harris did a very sophisticated and, you know, the, uh, actually by far the best uh, uh, development of the structural linguistics mm. approaches, which uh, took the object of study as a text, a corpus, yes. and uh, asked how can you organize it and you organize it by applying certain procedures you segment it into units you classify the segments uh, mm -hmm. you go on from there well you know when you look at it closely that simply later on he also went beyond sen sentences to discourses went on to texts yeah but it just doesn't work from the first step uh, the move from say uh, phonetic units to the next higher units, so-called phonemes, it just doesn't work, even at that level. So you, uh, you f when, you, when you really look at uh, how these systems, and, and this is also true of European structural linguistics, same problem, uh, you just can't get the, the phonological segments, the actual segments of the analysis of sound by segmentation of uh, uh, noises. Just a, yes. it fails right away. So and when you get something to something much more abstract is going so on. Much there. more, and, it, and when you get to things like we're called morphemes, you know, the, the unit, minimal units of meaning, or bigger phrases, it just collapses totally. Morphemes in fact, in and morphophonemics is actually what you started out with. Mainly, although when, it was when also when you did the first generative grammar. Yeah, but if you look back, that had a rudimentary syntax. Yes. Because you can't even get the morphonemics unless you have a syntactic structure. Right. And uh, you know some of the earliest things that were like Morris Halley and I did a paper in uh, came out in 1956 I guess which uh, s s investigated one of the main topics of structural linguistic study at the time which is uh, the analysis of pitch and stress stress yes you know so there's right and uh, it, was that uh, in honor of Roman Jacobs? It was in honor of Roman Jacobson, but uh, <laughs> if he read the <laughs> paper, to, if he read the paper, he wouldn't have liked it. But uh, <laughs> what, what it basically argued is that the systems of analysis that were used were just—they um, could give notations, they could provide notations for annotating yes. what you hear, but they couldn't explain the why do you have this contour and not some other contour. Mm -hmm. And you could explain them if you used some very simple ideas. One, you assumed that you had the syntax, so you knew the organization of the uh, expression into phrases, bigger phrases, and yes. so on. And you had a, a simple computational principle, principle of what's called cyclic computation. Mm -hmm. You start, you have very simple rules, you apply them to a small unit, you reapply them to a bigger unit, you keep reapplying them finite system of very, in fact, small system of rules, applying it according to a principle of cyclic computation, and that yields the actual contours. Yes, and the but unit you basically have uh, would be the sentence, right? That's the largest unit of yeah. uh, 
generation of uh, that the computational yeah. procedure because generates. Beyond that, it would go into rhetoric and yeah, beyond that, there's just other style of speech and other topics, very yeah. arbitrary things. Well, you know, they're not arbitrary. They have a lot of interesting structure to them, but different. It's totally yes. different beyond the level of the sentence. Yes. So, uh, anyhow, that was like that was the first really concrete example of how you just had to throw out the whole system uh, because that approach violated every procedure you can imagine. It was using yes. higher, more complex abstract levels like syntax in order to account for the most rudimentary phonetic facts. Yeah. And, as, and that works all over the place. Yeah. As I understand, you uh, put quite a lot of effort into trying to make these procedures work for a I couple of years. As a, well, I was a student of Harris's, yes. and you know, you try to use that some. That was just the way things. That's the way everybody does things. So I did a lot of work. Now, the procedures didn't quite work, so yes. I assumed if you work harder, you can fix them up, and they'll ultimately work. But pretty soon, it became pretty clear they're just on the wrong track. Yes. You're never going to get anywhere. This I way. think, in in terms of syntax, this would be the the point where one of the famous notions of generative grammar uh, came in, namely transformations. When did you uh, did you start? With well, that? actually, it's because in the syntax component in uh, your first work on Hebrew, uh, there were no transformations. Uh, yeah, so uh, actually, the note the, there's a notion of transformation in Harris's work too. But it was for yes. a different purpose. Uh, it, it was for analyzing discourse. analyzing discourse. discourse, and the idea was that if you want to try to analyze discourse, you first have to kind of normalize the sentences, make them look alike. So if you have a passive sentence, uh, change it to an active sentence, and if you get all the sentences kind of normalized, then you can do something like structural analysis of the discourse. Uh, but that's again organization of data. Uh, the transformations in generative grammar are quite different. Uh, they're part of the procedure for forming sentences in the first place. Yes. So take, uh, it turns out if you think about, say, a passive construction, uh, say John was killed, uh, the word John actually has two functions in that sentence. Uh, one, it's the object of kill, so you're killing John, you know. Uh, the other is it's the subject of the comment It's the topic of the sentence, right. and those are just two different things. So that would be a discourse-related well, function. For Harris, it was just a discourse. But I mean, for for Harris, everything was discourse, but beyond uh, beyond yes. segmentation and classification. Mm -hmm. But if you're working on generative procedures for sentences, you have to generate the sentence yes. "John was killed" with two interpretations, because the thought system interprets it in two positions. That becomes clearer if you take something like, uh, what did John see? Uh, the, it's actually interpreted as for which thing X, John saw X, and that's what has to go to the thought system. Well, uh, this displacement phenomena is ubiquitous in language, yes. and it gets far more complex than that. So we'll take a sentence I talked about last night. If you uh, take the sentence, uh, They expect to see each other. The each other refers to they. It means each of them expects to see others of them. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you say, who do they expect to see each other, that analysis doesn't work. Uh, the each other has nothing to do with they. It, it has to do with something that isn't heard, namely the subject of see what the sentence means, who do they expect to see each other, what it means is yes. for which person X they expect the X's to see each other, and the each other goes to X. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't hear that. The ear doesn't hear it, but the mind hears it. The mind sees it. The mind sees it, and the, the general procedure has to provide that to the mind. Well, at that point, you get into the so-called transformational operations. So one of the yes. ma major discoveries of the past Roughly 15. Which were uh, the areas where transformations ca first came in? I remember uh, quite vividly when I taught uh, a course on syntactic structures. And one of the things that was really fascinating to the students was uh, the auxiliary system. 
that was marvelously the first. it worked uh, when you had that phrase structure component and then you just had one uh, affix hopping and yeah. that that was it and that was actually the, the so first that was the first yes major discovery if you look at the structural linguistics analysis of the affix system it just listed everything it listed all the yes. possibilities uh, but if you sort of look into the nature of the system you can see that there are what are called discontinuous elements. Mm -hmm. Like if you say, uh, uh, I am reading, the ing and the am, the, the, the copula, they, they are together. They're a single unit. Yes. They just appear in different places. And if you do a simple analysis of what makes them discontinuous, it's a transformation. That's mm -hmm. it. And then the whole thing falls into a simple pattern. And that works for every language, basically. So that's one kind of simple transformation. It's a essentially morphological discontinuity. It's a non-contiguous relation, a relation between two things that aren't next to each other. So you can't get it in phrase structure grammar, and you can't get it by procedures of analysis. But you can get it by a simple displacement operation. But the much more general case is the general displacement that you get in things like, say, passive WH questions and so on. And when you begin to analyze constructions this way, you very quickly find uh, all sorts of you know, puzzles that you can't deal with in uh, terms of segmentation and classification yes. and constructions and so on. Like, um, who do they expect to see each other? A very simple example where what the ear is hearing is not what the mind is seeing. Yeah. And uh, there's a very simple so explanation. there has to be something that's not visible on the surface. Yeah, but you know, that's true right away. I mean, as soon as you look at phonetics, you find that. Mm -hmm. So even if you take a, it was also discovered in the early 50s by Haskins Laboratories and others, that if you take a simple click, you just take a, uh, you, know, you make a noise, a click. Uh, how that click is perceived linguistically depends on the vowel that follows. So there's a, if you take a particular click, it'll be interpreted as a T or a P or a K, depending on whether it's followed by E, A, uh, or U. Mm -hmm. So it's heard as P, Ta, Ku, but it's the same click. Actually, yes. my, my wife worked on this as a phonetician. In those days, uh, phonetics meant clipping things out of tape with a so scissors and the, stuff. Now you do it by computer. The idea was really it's there on, on tape and you can cut it out From and the, put, it put it somewhere else, else and it's yeah. still the same thing. Yeah, but and that, uh, even simple <coughs> things like that blow the whole system out of the water. And as soon as you go beyond, you know, everything collapses. Like what happened with behavioral psychology. As soon as you look at the simplest cases, like a pigeon playing ping pong, you see these experimenters just fooling themselves. Uh, in fact, what happened in the behaviorist literature is quite intriguing. Uh, the main, you know, the leading figure was B.F. Skinner, and uh, he uh, developed, you know, systems of conditioning, operant conditioning, and so on, which uh, actually are useful experimental tools. They don't tell you much, but mm -hmm. his students assumed, just like the linguists assumed, that the whole field is over. We know everything, so now we can go into applications. And in fact, his best students started to go into animal training. So all the famous animals, like uh -huh. you know, Flipper so the dolphin and so on, they were trained by the Skinner's two students. Uh -huh. But they discovered something that was quite intriguing. They discovered that the entire behaviorist literature was fooling themselves. Uh, if, you, you, if you train an animal, you think you're training, you know, take one famous case, they tried to train a pig to pick up a coin and put it in a slot, like a mailbox. So the pig was picking up the coin, putting it into the mailbox, and the pig worked fine. Uh, however, they discovered that if they continued the training, if they continued the performance, uh, the pig started uh, rooting. You know, that's what pigs do. That you went to the coin and started trying to dig it out. Uh, and it took longer, so the reinforcement was slower. And finally, the pig would starve to death. 
uh, because it would just keep rooting. It was hungrier and hungrier. Keep rooting yes. the lane. Well, what so they what basically they they were driving the pig mad. Well, what they were doing is working on the pig's instincts. They didn't yes. know it. They thought mm -hmm. they were training the pig to pick up a coin. The yes. pig thought this is food, you know, because if I do this crazy mm -hmm. thing, I'll get some food. Uh, and as it tried to get more and more food, it could starve to death. And in fact, all the training was like that. Then they went back and looked at the actual experiments, say with pigeons, and they found that it's exactly what happens in the experiments, except that the experimenters stop the experiment when the reinforcement starts work, doesn't work anymore. So they, it goes, the experiment goes through the early stage where, yeah, it works, the animal's interpreting it a different way, but then invariably the, it stops working. And at that point, the experiment stops. Mm -hmm. So you don't see that it's not working. But when you redo the experiments, it turns out conditioning isn't going on at all. Yes. You're just modifying slightly the animal's instinctive behavior. They called it instinctual drift, meaning the instincts take over. Yeah. It's basically Tinbergen, Lawrence, others, which nobody yes. was paying any attention to. And uh, that was enough. I mean, by the time this, you know, people started picking this up, they essentially blew away the field. It's not clear that conditioning mm -hmm. even exists. If, if, yeah. if it does, it's a marginal phenomenon. But, uh, and, and the same, it's kind of the same processes in uh, linguistics and also in general biology. So if you go back to the 1950s, 60s, uh, it was generally assumed by biologists and said that uh, animals can differ and organisms can differ in yes. any possible way, uh, just depending on the accidental course of... And by now that seems to be a much different... Totally different. In fact, it's emerging. so different that by now there are even serious proposals that are taken quite seriously mm -hmm. that there's a universal genome, uh, one yes. organism which came out of, uh, you know, the famous uh, uh, explosion so, half a million years yes. ago, the Cambrian explosion. But, and every organism from bacteria to humans is just some slight modification of the yes. same genome. It's not that, you know, everyone doesn't accept it, but it's considered a serious hypothesis yes. by now. How much, uh, that brings me to the question, how much inspiration uh, did you draw from developments in biology, and chemistry, things like that? Some, I mean, only because you start seeing how the sciences work. Yeah. The so-called human sciences are very different from the natural sciences in all sorts of ways. I mean, in the natural sciences, for example, uh, if you have a theory, some kind of a theory, and you get counterexamples, you try to hold on to the theory and get rid of the data. Uh, so famous case in the 19th century, the, uh, it was discovered that the orbit of Uranus, the planet Uranus, yeah, you, didn't... You were talking about that yes, yeah, it, yesterday. Well, it's a famous case in the yes, 19th century. But, uh, I think even Kepler or Galileo no, would be it, examples. When they why, did. why don't things fly off the, well, the that was earth. Galileo could not explain as, why as things... they should. But the same with Greeks. Yes. You go back to the uh -huh. Greeks, one of the major problems in Greek science, science and mathematics, when mm -hmm. distinguished, was the discovery of the irrational numbers. Yes. That if you take the diagonal of a square, mm -hmm. it's incommensurable with the sides of the square, which was considered like, um, you know, discovering that God doesn't exist or something. <laughs> But they didn't throw away geometry. They tried yes. to figure out what's going on. And the same with the orbit of Uranus. They didn't say, okay, let's throw away Newton's laws. Uh, they asked, well, you know, what could be doing it? And pretty soon, mm. de Verrier uh, discovered uh, an extra planet out there, Newton, Neptune, okay, that accounted for it by Newton's laws. In the human sciences, it's quite different. If you find a counterexample, you throw away everything. Uh, it's just totally irrational. In fact, the whole dominant line of kind of inquiry that goes on into human behavior, from looking at ape languages to analyzing corpuses to uh, misunderstanding generalizations, is completely different from the natural sciences for not recent, I mean, back to the Greeks. And that has to be overcome. So in this sense, yes, it was influential. I mean, noticing, I mean, there were major, really major errors in the natural sciences all the way into the 20th century. 
which were not understood and are very similar to what you read in, say, philosophy of language today. So, for example, it's a big argument in philosophy of mind, philosophy of language is alleged the problem is supposed to be that you can't reduce the study of mental acts to physical behavior. You can't find yes. a big problem. I mean, that was a problem in chemistry until yeah. the 1930s. You know, when I was a kid, you know, people assumed that the major scientists, you know, Nobel Prize winners, thought that chemistry is just a computational technique. Yes. It can't be real because you can't reduce it to physics. Well, in fact, it's, it's these little things you uh, you paint on blackboard and uh, just calculating devices. It's a technique for calculating the results yes. of experiment. Uh, the molecular theory of gases was treated the same way. Where's the molecules? You know, Poincaré, you know, the major yes. scientist of the 20th century, said that we can't take the molecular theory of gases seriously. Uh, who can see the molecules? You know, but uh, I mean, my my take on Poincaré is. Uh, He should have been uh, the one to uh, to discover or to propose uh, relativity. He pretty but near uh, did. He, he, was, he pretty he much was, did. He was very close, but he didn't give it a, a realist interpretation. He gave it a positivist interpretation. He, he <laughs> it looks as if things were like that. And then Einstein came along and said, Well, they actually, are like things that. are. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, he did more than that. He developed a mathematical theory of it. But uh, I mean, even if you look at Einstein, uh, immediately after Einstein's famous 1905 paper, Special Theory of Relativity, uh, experimental physicists started studying it in Germany, where the main experimental physics was, and they refuted it. You know, they had experiment after experiment that showed it didn't work. Uh, younger scientists completely disregarded the experiments. I mean, it was so obviously true that they didn't care what the experiments were. They just waited to find out what's wrong with the experiments. In fact, that goes on up till uh, the 1930s. I mean, there's a f you read someday the uh, correspondence between Max Born and Einstein, Max Born, famous physicist. Uh, in the late 1920s, Max Born, who followed experimental physics much more closely than Einstein did, Uh, pointed out to Einstein in the correspondence that a, a famous uh, American experimental physicist had apparently uh, disproven the Michelson-Morley experiment, yeah. famous experiment, which is part of the basis for relativity theory about ether and so on. Uh, he said, look, he seems to have disproven it. And then the correspondence is quite interesting. Both Einstein and Born take it for granted that the experiment's wrong. And uh, Born asks Einstein, do you think it would be worthwhile to go look closely at this guy's experiment and see what's wrong with it? And Einstein says, well, you know, who cares or something. But, uh, and then finally, some years later, you know, people redid the experiment and found there were statistical errors and so on. Uh, but that's typical of the sciences, as I say, all, all the way back to the Greek. It, and a very sharp break from the human sciences. Anyhow, to get back to the chemistry case, what is not quite understood is that the f it, it, it happened to be true that chemistry could not be reduced to physics. It was true. And the reason it was discovered, physics was wrong. Uh, it wasn't until the quantum theoretic revolution took place that you then had a way of giving an interpretation of, say, the chemical bond, you know, makes yes. in terms of, uh, if you give a quantum theoretic explanation, in fact, Linus Pauling got the Nobel Prize for this, 1935. Uh, but until then, chemistry could so not be reduced to physics. Unification turned out to be closer to chemistry than it to was. Well, chemistry didn't change; yes. physics changed, mm -hmm. and they were unified. It was, it was never reduced; couldn't be reduced. And very likely, the same will be true about. Uh, we a lot more was known about uh, uh, physics and chemistry than is known today about mental acts and the brain. Yeah. So the fact that they can't be unified, we don't know what that means. Could that mean that all that of neurology is wrong. brings me to, to another uh, area where the question of abstractness uh, comes in, and that's been bothering many people, uh, namely uh, the question of the relation between competence and uh, performance. Have you seen, uh, do you see a lot of uh, 
progress and developments going on in theory of uh, performance because I was just reading some stuff this brilliant book mm -hmm. by Bob Berwick where he talked about that performance uh, um, sentence parsing and processing in a minimalist setting. Um, there's supposed to be a problem about that but I don't know what it is in biology it's just taken for granted. In fact it's taken it's so taken for granted there isn't even a name for it. Uh, so take say the, the digestive system. I mean it has a certain structure and design you can investigate the properties of the digestive system that's essentially competence on the other hand how the digestive system works depends on whether you ate bean sprouts with e coli say uh, okay then it works differently then, so that's performance but this is so trivial that nobody even talks about it it's just taken for granted obviously there's a difference between the structure and design of a system and the way it operates in particular circumstances where many other factors intervene. That's competence well, uh, I think uh, the question how the performance system uh, uses the system of knowledge. Well, it's a that, perfectly that fine question. Uh, yeah. Yes. And there's a considerable amount of work on it. Um, most of the work is parsing programs. Yes. Uh, so an effort to because construct. nobody has an idea what's going on between having an, an idea and uh, making an utterance about well, that, the, that, that idea. nobody can even discuss. Yes. But uh, <laughs> it's you know it's a it's a question, but beyond the levels of yes. contemporary science. But um, parsing you can study, and there's a lot of work, and uh, uh, there's some interesting ideas about uh, uh, what is done when a person tries to assign the properly generated structure to a, a series of noises or words or whatever it is that come along. So yes, there's a, there are interest, it was a perfectly interesting study. Mm -hmm. And you find, uh, I mean, this is done back in the 1950s, so some of the work that uh, George Miller and I were doing back in the yes. 50s was about this, uh, this very striking fact that you can, sh uh, we have some articles about this, you can show that uh, in performance, I mean, the competence system allows indefinitely deep embedding. You can take yes. if-then sentences, either-or sentences, you know, men are, not men is, uh, structures like that, and you can embed them in each other without limit. On the other hand, if you look at performance, you ask if people can understand these sentences, it turns out you can, we did construct examples up to about depth yes. seven, <laughs> but you couldn't <laughs> go beyond that. Now, that's a, and that's seven is already very much. Yeah. Well, seven yeah, is. Yeah, the sentence like uh, the cheese, uh, the mouse, uh, the rat, a, the cat. Uh, we'll see, but that's that's a different problem. Yes. That's the problem of self-embedding. Yes. With self-embedding, when you keep embedding the same structure, you can only get to about three. Yes. And uh, the fact that you can get to seven uh, relates to the nature of short-term memory. It's uh, Miller, in fact, had shown yeah, that, he had uh, that famous article, the number seven plus, plus or minus, minus two. two, and that's true all the way, you know, for birds yes. and so on. There's a kind of a fixed bound on short-term memory, and humans are a little so bigger than short-term memory would be another one of those modules. It's some kind of module of the memory system, yes. and that kicks in for humans maybe about seven, for that's birds small. about five, you know, yes. but they're not fundamentally different. On the other hand, self-embedding is a much more interesting question because why should it be harder to uh, parse a construction where you keep using the same principle over and over than if you use different principles? Uh, that's still not solved, incidentally, but it's mm -hmm. definitely true. With self-embedding, let's say, if then, you can't get beyond even three is very hard and yes. two is about the actual limit. So the, probably what's going on... I, I always have problems in the seminars to even create the, the sentences. Yeah. Well, if you get to three, nobody can understand it, barely. And if you go beyond... And, and there is a question why self-embedding should be much more difficult than embedding. Mm -hmm. And the principle probably is that when you're parsing a sentence, you, in computer lingo, you call on a subroutine like if you get a, an if, then you call in a subroutine which says, okay, I'm looking for if then. And you can't 
call in that subroutine again while you're executing it. That seems to be the general principle. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that is going to keep prevent self-embedding. But if that's true, that's a much more far-reaching principle of parsing. And as soon as you look beyond the trivial things, like say short-term memory, uh, you find that uh, basic performance principles are entering. Uh, uh, but these are principles of performance, and they may be general cognitive, like you should be able to show comparable examples in things like puzzle solving or object recognition and so on. Not easy, but you can look for them, uh, because these are probably just general cognitive principles that enter into the performance systems. Mm -hmm. However, they all are quite, they all make use of the design and structure of the system, what's called competence, just as in the case of digestion. Yeah. Yeah, let me, let me get uh, to a final complex that relates to things you talked about yesterday, namely going back to Aristotle, who talked about uh, language being a relation of sound and meaning, and you kind of turned it around, said, uh, saying that uh, actually we should regard it as uh, meaning being the primary thing, and sound something secondary that gets ex that externalizes kind of externalizes uh, what is the real thing. It may or may not be externalized. In fact, if yes. you just introspect for a minute, uh, almost your entire use of language is talking to yourself. Yes, you can't spend one minute without <coughs> talking to yourself. Uh, the yes. uh, like 99 percent of the use of language is internal. But uh, one question I was wondering about yesterday, when you talked about the island sentences, uh, when we are talking half consciously, fully consciously, or subconsciously to ourselves, uh, ha not having to externalize the things uh, will probably would disregard the island constraints. For well, example, like... You see, but that's, uh, a, that's a misunderstanding okay. of internal speech. Internal speech is actually more complex than I just said. Yeah. It's re-internalization of externalized speech. Okay. So when you're consciously thinking, you know, you're walking down the street and thinking about something, you're thinking in the external language. Okay. Just think about it. Yeah. Uh, you can tell whether two sentences in yeah. your mind rhyme okay, or whether one's longer than the other. Mm -hmm. That means you're using the external language, you're re-internalizing it. But the actual thinking is just not accessible to consciousness. Yeah. Remember when what we talk about, we introspect, we're talking about consciousness. But consciousness is just a superficial uh, reflection of whatever's going on yeah, inside. So most mental things going on are subconscious. It just can't, not only subconscious, but inaccessible yeah. to consciousness. I mean, that's there's an interesting history of this. In fact, if you look through intellectual history, the idea that there is internal thought that is inaccessible to consciousness is almost never expressed. I mean, yes. It's not even in Freud. Like if you look at Freud, the, he does talk about the unconscious, but you know, kind of tacit assumption is you can for, bring it to consciousness. For example, you have that principle of uh, accessibility to consciousness in principle. So you can bring forward, you bring to consciousness the that's a, and That's a philosophical dogma, yes. Yes. which has absolutely yeah. no evidence yes. and is totally incoherent when you look at it. But it's a dogma. Uh, it's, it's considered even the criterion of the mental. You have to be able to bring it in principle to consciousness. Yes. Absolutely no reason to believe that. And uh, it's almost entirely, it's all, all the evidence shows it's totally false. The language is a case in point. What we think to ourselves is re-internalized external speech. In fact, it's kind of interesting to ask the question about signers. It hasn't been studied, but uh, the people who work on sign guess, you know, they haven't studied it yet, that signers probably think to themselves in sign. Now, there should be ways so that of, would be the re -internalization of, their, of their external system. Now, there are very subtle ways of testing things like this. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the case of you and me, we think in spoken language, uh, if you do very sensitive analysis of, say, the lips, you can find 
evidence from yes. kind of the unconscious lip. Something's going on when you're uh -huh. thinking, things like that. And it's conceivable, if you could do the experiments properly, that if you studied the fingers of signers, mm -hmm. that you would find some reflection of what they're thinking about in their fingers. You know? uh, but these are hard experiments, but something like yeah, that. But the point is that beyond this, below the level of consciousness for either signers or speakers, we've got the same things going on. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of misunderstanding of this. I mean, it shows up in a lot of domains. Uh, recently, you may have read that uh, there were some discoveries that uh, uh, that uh, if you're planning to do something, like I'm deciding to pick up mm -hmm. this glass, uh, before I decide to pick it up, before a small amount yes. of time, but before it, there's <laughs> activation in the uh, motor centers of the brain. Uh, this again has been abused and misused in my way, uh, uh, in my view. For example, uh, when you have these philosophical discussions about free will, it's been, it's been used to exactly. demonstrate that this actually... Was, <laughs> and it doesn't show anything at all. <laughs> no. All it shows is you're making a decision before you're conscious of it. Okay. Yes. That's, um, yeah. But uh, uh, this stuff gets wildly misinterpreted because of a dogma that says there's nothing beyond what's conscious, or yeah. at least in principle accessible to consciousness. And that goes way back in history. It's very yeah. hard to find and anyone who questions this. In the philosophy this. of language and mind, so you know that much better than I what's current, what people are writing. Uh, that's still the case. Everybody Almost says, uh, well, the mind is just about consciousness. Or what's in principle yes. accessible to consciousness. Oh. You get into all kind of problems because of things like what's called blind sight. Uh, it's a famous phenomenon now that uh, with a certain kind of uh, damage to the visual system, a special kind of damage, uh, you get people who have this behavioral phenomenon. They uh, look at a, you know, they look at a, uh, let's say it damages half the visual system. So you can see what's on the left, but not what's on the right. So you present them with a, uh, a, a visual image and say they can't see what's on the right, uh, where what's on the right is, let's say, a fire. Mm -hmm. And uh, you ask the person, what do you see? And they say, I don't see anything. Yeah. On the other hand, you find behavioral evidence that they're actually seeing it. They're not conscious of seeing it, but they're like they recoil yes. or something uh -huh. like that, uh, which it's called uh -huh. blindsight, yeah. which means that something's going on, which is... That's, uh, that's the most succinct demonstration that something's yeah, going well, on If you outside. take a look at the philosophical literature, there's all kind of elaborate ways of trying to get around this, but yes. there's no way to get around it uh, without going into total incoherence. But uh, in general, the whole dogma has to be thrown out. It's, a, it's an ancient dogma. It's almost unchallenged. It's really hard to find anyone in the whole history of philosophy who's ever questioned it. Maybe Jung questioned it, sort of, but in a very obscure fashion, you know. But it's, and it has a very tight grip, and it has to be thrown out. It's like the belief that, uh, you know, people like Poincaré and others, that if you don't, if you can't see it, it can't really be there, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, and maybe get back to the question of externalization once more. Uh, Cedric, uh, Cedric Books uh, had an article in that new book, Biolinguistic Enterprise, that, uh, re that relates uh, the char character of words as we have them, as humans, different as you uh, explained yesterday from, let's say, animal calls, which have one, one relation to what's going on in the outside world. And uh, he relates uh, the character of words to the computational system. So words have an edge feature which makes them mergeable, if I understand yeah, him correctly. Yeah, but he's talking about the syntax of words. Yes. But what I was talking about yesterday is the semantics of words. Yeah. That's quite a different question. See, there's another philosophical dogma. I think he's, he's also getting uh, at that, at the referential question. I don't think uh, so. As I understood him, he was also bringing in, in the idea that uh, the detachability of words from the concrete object also has something to do with the edge feature. That can't be. 
I mean, it just can't be. It's a completely different phenomenon. Okay. If you look at the meaning of a word, mm -hmm. this is again pretty obvious, but it's, there is a philosophical dogma, unchallengeable, uh, which holds that, uh, say you have the word cow, standard example, uh, the meaning of cow is that thing over there. Uh, and sure. there's a causal yes. relation, you know, you kind of look at the cow and somebody says cow and that establishes the meaning. It's totally false. And you can tell it, yeah. you can tell it from children's it's, stories, you know. It's standard semantics, but uh, yeah, I, kept, I kept telling students the it's same. Totally we, false. Are, we are doing this uh, standard thing so that you know, but think about it. Well, as soon as you think <laughs> you about cannot, it, you see it can't be, be true. Yes. So, uh, standard fairy tale that every infant understands. Uh, the uh, wicked witch uh, turns the handsome prince into a frog, okay? And uh, finally the beautiful princess comes along and kisses the frog and out comes the prince. Uh, every infant understands that that thing that has all the properties of a frog is actually the prince. Like if a prince didn't come out, that a, you know, an eagle came out, the child would be surprised. You know? So somehow a, an infant knows that what identifies a person is in fact some non-physical property, a, a property of what's called psychic continuity. So there's something about the psychic continuity that identifies persons. Same is true of cows. There has to you get the same stuff. For example, there is a children's story, which my grandchildren like, where uh, uh, the Wicked Witch uh, turns a baby donkey into a rock. And uh, throughout the whole story, this rock is trying to convince its parents, I'm really your baby donkey. And uh, since ch children's literature always has happy endings, you know, at the end, uh, out comes the baby donkey. But the kids understand that that rock which has only rock properties, is in fact the baby donkey. Uh, same with cows. You know. yeah. Psychic continuity is a property of w which we impose upon organic yeah. creatures, that, uh, but it's not a physically identifiable property, and that means there is no reference. And this is true for every word you think about. I mean, uh, so the whole, uh, I, and in fact, it's interesting that this was understood by Actually, there's something like it in Aristotle even, but it was pretty well understood by classical empiricists, mm -hmm. Locke, Hume, others, they understood it. Yeah, but actually, uh, that's something I wanted to get at, uh, the character of the words that we use, which is radically different from what animals do, and uh, probably what our predecessors did. Um, well, cer so certainly, because apes don't do it. Yes. Not that they're, they're not <coughs> our predecessors, but uh, whatever common origin there was to yes. primates certainly didn't do it. 